I'm Cody Hutchinson, and welcome to the first episode of my podcast, Conversations with Cody, Jazz Talks. Today I talk with famed composer, bassist, and producer Steve Swallow. Steve Swallow may not be a household name unless you happen to be a jazz musician, but if you've listened to contemporary jazz over the last 50 years, you've likely heard him on one side of the studio glass or the other. One of the first jazz bassists to switch to the electric bass, he has been on numerous recordings, and as a producer, he has been a trusted voice for the likes of jazz icons such as Pat Metheny, Bill Frizzell, and John Schofield. His collaborations with artists such as Carla Blay and Jimmy Jeffrey have cemented him in the jazz history books, but he is also a composer of the highest level. Many jazz musicians know of his work through the venerated real books. He was one of the inspirations for its creation while he was teaching at Berkeley in Boston in the early 1970s. One of his lifelong collaborators, guitarist John Schofield, has recently released an album featuring Steve on bass and Bill Stewart on drums, paying tribute to Steve's most celebrated compositions. The album released by ECM is called Swallow Tales, and I am very excited to have bassist and composer Steve Swallow joining me today from his home near Woodstock, New York. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing, Steve? Uh, Very well. How are you? I am doing very well having the chance to talk with you as a being a bassist myself. This is one of those evenings I'm very happy about. So let's jump straight into your new album with John Schofield, Swallow Tales. This album, one of the things that jumped off of the page after listening to it and reading about it was that you recorded this album in a half a day live session in essence. It sounds like a studio album, but half a day, it's to me becoming a lost art was this kind of your preference to move forward in recording an album or would you have wanted in retrospect more time well i'm i'm very happy that uh that that was the approach to doing this this particular album swallow tales um i think it was the right call and it was a call that john made it was his decision to approach this album in in this way it's a a kind of album making I'm familiar with. I, I did a great deal of it, and, and it's fallen out of favor to make albums so quickly. Now it's it's kind of assumed when you make an album that it's going to be a process that takes weeks or months, and that you'll do multiple takes and have the the ability to fix wrong notes and all of that stuff. And and it was kind of understood by John and Bill, the drummer Bill Stewart, and and me that that wasn't how we were going to approach this that that we were just going to go in and play these tunes and four or five hours later we were going to emerge from the studio with an album for better or worse and i mean that has the effect of of really you know you understand it's time to put up or shut up it's uh almost all the performances on that album were first takes actually and uh a couple of the tunes are required a second take, but it but it was as as close to a to a live performance as as uh, as you can get in a in a studio context. Uh, again, I think it was the right call. It was what the songs wanted. The the songs wanted to to be played with a kind of directness and and uh, a kind of do or die focus. The uh, they're they're not the kind of songs that profit from glossy, perfect production. They're the kind of songs that were written to be played like a song in the real book. You know, you just okay, let's open to page seventy-eight and play that one, and and you just play it to death, and then move on to the 
on to the next song. And I, did, I think that feel is kind of transmitted in the in the album that we ended up with, uh, Swallowtail. So I, I think there's the sense that it's just a bunch of guys in a room playing as well as they possibly can. I mean, the, the that's one thing I love about John is he plays in earnest. Every, every song he plays is his last song, potentially his last song, just dives into it. It seems like that's kind of a connection that you both have. You've been playing together since the 70s. And I'm curious what keeps drawing you back together as collaborators. And I'm guessing that might be uh, part of it because you're, what, 79. And everything that I've listened to and, and read about you as of late, that you're still pushing on the instrument and learning and striving. And I feel Schofield, is that kind of one of those connective fibers for you? Um, he is indeed. And I mean, our our relationship has endured over the years since the mid-70s. He's been, he's been very important to me. I Normally, when when you have this kind of inter intergenerational rapport, you know, I'm kind of a generation above him. By the time we met, I'd I'd already had a 20 years of playing experience under my belt, and 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 the presumption in that in those circumstances, I think, is that the old guy is teaching the young guy. But in point of fact, the secret that the old guys keep from the young guys is that the young guys are really teaching the old guys. Uh, <laughs> and John's been a tremendous help to me over the years. I mean, the other part of what you said is, uh, yes, I'm, I'm very much involved in trying to learn to play the damn bass. It's a, a remarkable lifelong challenge to get the instrument right. And, and you ought to know as you're, you're involved in the same thing. I mean, it seems so deceptively simple to just play the the root on the downbeat. But in point of fact, that's a life's work to get that root placed perfectly on the downbeat and to get it sounding perfectly and all that that means. I mean, it can really keep you busy. I'm, and, and it's interesting in these particular days when the when the virus is upon us and, and, and we're forced into our homes and, and into ourselves, in effect, uh, I've, I've just had a a wonderful time and i don't i don't mean to m make light of the the horror of the spread of the virus but i've just had a wonderful time being consigned to my basement and to the in particular to the bach cello suites to just trying to get them to sound well on the electric bass and all of that it's uh it's been a, a real education the last two or three months <laughs> i love those suites as well on electric and upright they are tough to uh sing the songs for this album, Swallowtails, they're all compositions that you wrote. And an interesting review recently from The Times spoke about how John Schofield wanted to set the record straight as to your legacy as a top jazz composer. And by you know the fact so many artists had performed and recorded these tunes, but there was maybe a feeling that putting all of these in this album um, at this time would be another way to help, say, this is Steve Swallow. This is some of his body of work and really puts you in the forefront. And one other thing that a quote from Schofield that I'm, you might have heard or maybe not about your tunes. He said, they're interesting chord changes to blow over, but they're not too interesting. And it, he put that in the sense of how people try to overwrite to make something cutting edge and hip where it makes it hard to solo on them. And he said, that's really not the case with you. Your tunes make perfect sense. They're rooted in tradition as well as having 
having interesting and unique movement. What are your thoughts on those statements from Schofield? Well, I consider them a a great, uh, well-considered compliment because it does hit on an essential aspect of what what I'm trying to do. I mean, uh, and I and I think John is doing the same thing in his his writing. If you're a jazz writer, you're writing music in the service of improvisers. I mean, uh, almost certainly the improviser is going to play your song in order to get to his solo. <laughs> and that's just a fact. That's the point of the song you've written is to is to give the improviser what he needs. And as as John pointed out, what he needs is a lot but not too much. And it's a, a balancing act that takes a, a lifetime to realize. Um, my best friend Carla Blay has is, is always been insistent that the composer's primary tool is not the pencil, it's the eraser. And I, I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've learned that from her many, many years ago. A tune that, that will serve an improviser well has to be stripped of filigree, pretension, uh, verbosity, all, all of the things that that sometimes creep into long forms. it's 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 really essential that the a song for an improviser be as as distilled as boiled down as it as it can possibly be, so that what the improviser is given is just kind of an an essential impulse. Uh, a push into a terrain he hasn't been to before, but a, a gentle push. Uh, I think John has really hit on on something that some of the most advanced tunes stand well on their own, but are a little constraining to the improviser. The improviser is left with such a daunting challenge that he's simply not able to to sing his song, and and ultimately the. The song you write for the improviser has to has to enable him, has to allow him to sing his his song. Now, a lot of artists I talk to go through different phases where they're writing lots of music and sometimes not. Are you still in a writing phase right now? And if so, where are you drawing inspiration from? Uh, I'm drawing inspiration from a couple of dead guys, primarily. <laughs> uh, they're often dead guys. Uh, I've been absorbing. Uh, more classical music than jazz music lately, and in particular, there's a there's a New York composer who died this year named Charles Warren and W U O R I N E N, who writes very abstruse, difficult music that for some reason speaks clearly to me, and it, it's uh, it, it's it is extremely complex. It's the references to tonality in it are glancing and slight, let's say. Uh, and it seems like an unlikely source for a guy who writes songs with chord changes and melodies for improvisers to play on. But I, I'm finding a lot to work with in his music. And I've, I've also been re-listening lately to a lot of Shostakovich, who's, who's been an abiding inspiration over the over the years his his harmonic vocabulary has been very important to me and the beethoven late quartets uh, 
again i've been i've been kind of going back to some of the pillars of the of the music that i've used over the years the music that's been most important to me uh, i guess it's a seeing these days as kind of a time of reckoning as a, as the a, a, a time where where the the need to consolidate is is foremost so leading up to this interview, Steve, I had reached out on Facebook to some of the top jazz musicians in the region and Canada and had some from beyond chime in, asking them if they had any questions that they might like to know the answer from you, some points of interest throughout your career. And I had a great one from a drummer from Calgary named John McCasin, who was really interested to know about the early days of ECM and what it was like to find your voice outside of the bebop tradition, working with the likes of Carla and Paul Blay and Jimmy Jufri. Ah, Jufri, yeah, Jimmy Jufri. Yeah, now you, coming up, I'm assuming were raised on a diet of traditional jazz, bebop, those type of things, but you decided to go a different way. Yes, I did. And I, and I think, as is the case with many of the, the kind of key moments in one's life, the kind of significant choosing of, of this path or that path, um, my exposure to Paul Blay and his music was a kind of, you know, road to Damascus experience. As you rightly guessed, I, I was, at, at the time I first met and heard Paul play. I was a 19-year-old university student who listened to a lot of Sonny Rollins and played Dixieland for profit on the weekends. And all of a sudden, by, by chance, it was something that happened to me. It wasn't, wasn't something that I, that I did. I, I found myself on the bandstand with Paul Blay, and it was a revelatory experience to me. That that the kind of open vistas that his music uh, allowed were 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 possible was just an utter revelation and and, and a joyful one at, at that to me. I played a concert with Paul uh, that affected me so strongly. I I went back to my room, my dorm room, and got violently ill. I, w I was sick for for several days with a very high fever. <laughs> And when when this all finally subsided, I kind of marched across campus to the registrar's office and quit uh, and packed my stuff and headed for New York City and presented myself at Paul Blay's doorstep, Paul and Carla Blay. Uh, she was his wife at that time. Uh, and said, okay, your bass player is here. Luckily, he didn't throw me out. He said, oh, well, come on in. It was, you know, a terribly important ex experience to me. I've, I've found that most of the, the most significant turnings in my life are events that happened to me, not events that I precipitated myself. I mean, the same thing happened when I chose to switch from acoustic bass to electric bass. It was, was not at all a decision I made. In fact, if I had had my choice, I would never have switched to the electric bass to play jazz music. I, I, I had the same prejudices against the electric instrument that, that all other jazz musicians had, at least at that, at that time. But a, 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 an electric bass happened to choose me one day and placed itself in my hands, and I fell in love. You know how it is. There's nothing you can do. You can't can't deny the force of that experience and that's that's what happened at that turn is as well 
And as a bass player myself, we could go down this path for hours, but I am going to try and keep it succinct. And in response to that revelatory moment you were talking about, I read a quote from you regarding switching from upright to electric bass, where you said you found it liberating to find that Paul Chambers was no longer looking over your shoulder. And Paul Chambers, of course, referring to that history of the upright bass by switching to the electric bass, did you feel that a door had been opened and that barriers had been dropped and that expectation had been released from you? Uh, that that was my that was my hope. Uh, that that was kind of my sense of what had happened to me when I switched to electric. That 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 I was in the position of having to devise my own solutions to the the issue of, of finding a place for this instrument within within jazz music. I I didn't take the electric bass because I wanted to become a, a rhythm and blues musician or a rock and roll musician. I wanted to do exactly what I had been doing. I wanted I wanted to play post bebop jazz music. To do what Paul Chambers had done was was inappropriate to the electric bass. It wouldn't work. So whether whether I wanted him or not, I I could no longer have him. There was the need to kind of to to, to really sit down and and ask some essential questions. You know, what can this instrument do that the acoustic bass can't do, and and what are the things that one leaves behind when one abandons the acoustic bass? And there there certainly are things. I mean, you're well aware of this. It's uh, the the electric bass re- requires a, a a different technique and and a different approach to functioning in the in the rhythm section uh, and it's a it's an issue I'm 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 still engaged in I'm still grappling with with that very fundamental issue and I must say the people who've who've been willing to play with me since I made the switch uh, uh, have also had to kind of deal with it. Uh, when you accept the electric bass into your band instead of the acoustic bass, you, you're making a, a kind of bold move. You have to rethink a little bit how you function as a soloist with the with the electric bass playing lines beneath you rather than the, the acoustic bass. In the end, I think that's worked to my advantage too, because the people I've played with have been adventurous. They've been they've been willing to uh, to take the risk along with me. Well, I can definitely say as an electric and an upright player, when you show up sometimes with the electric bass on gigs, you'll get that look from musicians going, hey, where's your real bass? <laughs> well, I appreciate so much that you have committed wholeheartedly to the electric bass that you just, no fear, jumped both feet in and fully committed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. But, but I mean, it is it is kind of fun to 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 be constantly making the argument to, to the other players on the bandstand that what you're doing works if they will only listen and come along with you on this adventure you're having. It, it can work really well, and it's uh, it's 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 fun to watch people on the bandstand. Uh, come to the realization that that inappropriate choice can be the right choice anyway. 
And you've had to make some hard choices in your career on that as well with artists such as Thelonious Monk and Keith Jarrett who wanted you in their band, but they just weren't open to the experience of having you on electric bass. Yes, ex- exactly. I mean, I've been, in those cases, for example, I really felt that, that I was being tested, that, that my resolve to, to play the electric bass was was being tested. It was, it was of course, a... a a supreme temptation to just revoke my commitment to the electric bass in in order to play with those guys and and others as well who just simply didn't hear the electric bass within the context of their music. Um, And I think I came out stronger when I made the decision to reject this remarkable opportunity in in favor of continuing on with the electric bass. It, it It just kind of hardens your resolve. And this makes me think of a question that one of Canada's top bass players, Jody Prosnick from Vancouver, uh, she was asking, and I think this fits in with that idea of resolve and commitment of you switching over to electric bass. If you could go back in time to chat with your young musician self, what advice would you give him? Yes, you know, I, I, this sounds kind of fatuous and it sounds like a sort of automatic response in a way. But if I were to confront my younger self, I, I would just, you know, wag my finger very sternly at my younger self and say, practice, for God's sake, practice. I see myself as kind of a late bloomer and I really only came to the to understand the the joys of practicing and the and the the benefits of practicing late in my career and and that was i think partly because when i was 20 years old the gigs for a jazz bass player ran from nine o'clock at night until three in the morning and there was a tremendous amount of live playing going on and after six hours a night of of, of playing six six sets at a nightclub, the the urge to practice was kind of muted. The next day, when you got up, you mostly wanted to just kind of soak your hands and eat breakfast. I skipped over some of some of the stuff that has subsequently become really important to to me uh, in in the, the the environment I was in, where, where I was playing so often with 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 other people, and of course that's supremely important, and I'm I'm glad to have had that experience. But when I kind of hit my middle years and beyond, the benefits of of confronting the instrument very carefully and deliberately all by myself in the in the basement with nothing but my instrument and a and a music stand dawned slowly on me, and I I wish that process had happened sooner. I wish I had focused on the instrument, on on manipulating the instrument, establishing and developing a relationship with the instrument sooner in in my life. When you're young, there's so much to do. And, and, And of course, it's supremely important. I mean, I think all of the the other stuff I did, the books that I read, the relationships that I had and all of that fed into the, the music I played, enriched the music I play. And, uh, you know, the life you live enters into the song you sing in a, in a, in a way that's hard to, to put your finger on, but is very important. So I don't I, I have I have only a few 
regrets about the life I've led. But I, I wish there were a few extra hours in each day of my youth that I could have spent practicing the, the instrument. When you mention that, it makes me think of when I was younger, I had the opportunity to study at the Banff Center for the Arts with bassist Don Thompson from Canada, who that was his saying was practice while I was on the bandstand. I didn't have time to practice. Oh, yeah. And then another great quote, having talked with David Sanborn, where he said, I had all of the opportunity and none of the ability. Well, I feel like that switched now to younger players who have all of the ability and none of the opportunity. They're in a practice room and they don't have as many opportunities to play with people to develop their sound. I feel that's something that has shifted dramatically over the decades. Yeah, I agree. And I agree entirely. And it's, and it's, uh... And it, it's interesting to me that you you brought up Don's name because he's he's a, a master. And if if he learned what he knows on the bandstand, he, he he really applied himself while he was on the on the gig because he he's evolved a, an immaculate technique and a, and a, and a really ad, advanced ap- approach to the the, the content of, of his playing. Of, uh, of course, it doesn't hurt that he's an excellent pianist and re- really knows how to explore the entire music. Uh, uh, I was also a, a, an avid piano student as a, as a young kid, and I still use the piano as a kind of window into the into the world of the the, the music that's that's going on above me as I play my my bass lines, but I think the, the bass players I, I love most are, are all really carefully informed about what's going on above them as they play. And you hear the sense of their relationship to what's going on uh, around them is, is integral to, to the success of their playing. And of course, that's something you can't find in the practice room. You, you can only find it playing with people. Now, Don did say to me he did have a four-month period of practice in the 60s where he was with George Shearing, and they had a four-month run at the Waldorf Astoria where they played two sets a night, and apparently Don would go to his hotel room every day and learn two brand-new standards in an attempt to stump George Shearing. <laughs> and did he did he succeed? Because George is famous for his his knowledge of, of Tin Van Alley. No, apparently he would play a couple of notes each night and George would be there. He never stumped him. I'm, I'm not surprised. George was famous for the breadth of his knowledge of Tin Pan Alley tunes. George was a vastly underrated musician. I, th- I think, you know, time has, has told us how brilliant he was and, and, and what a remarkable craftsman he was as well. Absolutely a beautiful player. Well, Steve, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thanks, thanks very much for your your interest. This was uh, this was fun to do. Well, I had a great time as well. Thank you so much, Steve. Once again, Steve Swallow, legendary bassist, composer. The brand new album on ECM under guitarist John Schofield's name, called Swallow Tales, and filling out the group Bill Stewart on drums. You've been listening to Conversations with Cody Jazz Talks. 
I'm Cody Hutchinson. If you want to find out more information about this podcast or any other things that I'm up to, you can go to CodyHutchinson.com. That's K-O-D-I. Have a great rest of your day.